the Children for Children's Church. Could you join me in prayer as we begin to our service together? You may be seated, that's fine. Lord, we again come with thanksgiving. Lord, we thank You that we could share together and worship with our offering. We ask Your blessing on it. And Lord, as we open Your Word, we ask Your, your clearness through Your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds that we would receive it for where we each are in our walk with You to be ministered to, to draw closer to You, to be stronger in You, to be a stronger witness for You. And we thank You that we can come together today in the freedoms that we have. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 17. We'll be starting with verse 22 this morning. It's been quite a chapters we go through it and uh, we started with the transfiguration what an amazing part of scripture that is the glory of Christ revealed and and then coming down and and, and immediately being confronted by the demonic and a, and a boy that needed healing and and now we move to uh, Jesus foretelling his death his burial and his resurrection as we start in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take a toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. An amazing passage of Scripture. And there's so many things to unfold in it. I, I'm, I hope that I can give you a, a, a enough to work with this morning. First off, I want to go to verse 24, and then I'm going to come back to verses 22 and 23. So, in verse 24, it says, when they came back to Capernaum. Capernaum was their Galilee headquarters, kind of a home base. And the disciples and Jesus returned there, possibly to Peter's house, from the indication of where we are and what is happening here. Uh, And Peter being talked to by the tax collector uh, for the temple, and so... When they came back, it says, uh, you know, to Capernaum, we understand again that they had been a long time away. And as we look, we see again just here in chapter 17 the things that happened. But Jesus had been primarily ministering now for a while 
to the disciples as much as possible, preparing them for what was coming. And that's where he gets to in verses 22 and 23, which we'll get back to in a few minutes. So a long time away from Capernaum. And Jesus, like I said, focusing on the teaching to the disciples. And now they're home. And the first thing that happens is that the temple tax collectors show up. Peter appears to be outside when this happens. And so they talk to Peter. They don't approach Jesus directly, but they say, does your teacher pay the the two dachma tax, which is basically a temple tax collected for each person to take care of the needs of the temple, uh, the sacrifices, uh, in fact, we will look in Exodus chapter 30 in just a minute to read where that comes from. And so, Peter is, is approached with this. Does your teacher pay? And immediately he says, yes. He pays the temple tax. In Exodus chapter 30 is where the temple tax is introduced to us. And... It started with the 11th verse. Exodus 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 gerhas. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. At that point, they had a half shekel coin. And everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. It was thanksgiving for being delivered from Egypt and from slavery. It was tied all together with that. But the idea of atonement, what happened in the temple? It was the sacrifices that were made by the priests for the atonement of sins. And so this tax was tied to that idea of atonement. And so, still in the time of Jesus, they were paying this temple tax according to the Scripture. Now, it was interesting that this two drachma tax, or half shekel tax, had become something of a debate among the different groups of the Jewish Groupings of people. Some, you know, thought that uh, it, it was uh, uh, something that uh, they didn't need to pay anymore. That it was it, it was no longer a need for it. That some groups actually wouldn't pay it. They thought it was a one-time thing back in the Old Testament, the way they interpreted that. And you can see that if you read it. You could come to that possible interpretation. And so they said it's been done and taken care of and that law has been met. Others were saying, no, it needs to be done you know, uh, on, on, a, on a regular basis. 
once a year annually. And it seemed to be a debatable thing amongst the, the different people. It was something apart from the tithe. It had nothing to do with their tithing. They couldn't include that like, oh, these were included in my tithe. This was separate from that. And like I said, it had become optional. The majority, however, were of the, of the census that it was something that should be annually paid. And there were a temple tax in the major cities to collect this temple, to collect this temple tax. They were part of the synagogue. They would go out and collect the tax locally. Again, Peter's home in, in Capernaum. That's why I believe that's where they probably were. And the question comes back to it again. Does Jesus pay this tax? And Peter immediately says yes. And the, the idea of looking at this is that Peter was so adamant about this that it was kind of like, was Peter jumping out? Some, some commentators say Jesus was, or Peter was doing his typical jumping out and, and making a statement, putting his foot in his mouth before he did any thinking about it. But I think more probably, and I think a number of commentators held to this opinion, was that Peter had seen Jesus already pay the temple tax. He was probably in the majority that it was something that was annually paid. Jesus, however, did not need to pay the temple tax. And the interesting part about it is that that's what he tries to describe to Peter in his questions. And it's an interesting thing. Peter's outside. All of this happens outside of the sight of Jesus. And, and, and when Peter walks in, uh, Jesus uh, makes a statement to him before, before Peter. And you'd think Peter was going to come in and say, do you know what? The tax collectors were just here and they're ready to collect the taxes. What do we do? Do we, you know, do we have enough money to do this? It was basically two days' wages uh, for each of them. And, and Jesus uh, says to Peter very specifically, <laughs> go fishing. Uh, but, but first he, he, he makes the, the statement very clearly uh, that you know, he is, he says, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take the toll or the tax? From their sons or from others? In other words, when a king's collecting a tax or when the authority is collecting, do they collect the king? Does the king collect from his family? No, if anything, he's collecting the tax to use for his family. It's part of the things that are going to happen with that. And, and, and so he says, do you collect it from the sons or does he collect it basically from the citizens, the others? And Peter says, well, the others. And Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. Who is he talking about here is the son himself. He is free to not pay the tax. We could go into so many different things where Jesus points out. He says, I am the temple. Destroy it in three days and it will be raised up. And a number of different things that he says about it. But he says basically the fact of, of, of atonement and redemption that we look at back in Exodus chapter 30. Does Jesus need redemption? No, but he still pays the tax. And he says he does it so as to not make offense. 
He said, we, you know, when Peter said from others, he says, then the sons are free. However, in other words, I'm free. I shouldn't have to pay this tax. And the possibility of even thinking in terms of all who believe in him shouldn't have to pay this tax. But the idea was, however, not to give offense to them. Who's the them? Well, first off, the tax collectors. Now, what would the tax collectors do if Jesus had said, or Peter had said no? Well, they'd have gone back to the synagogue and immediately there would be another uproar. But it was more than that. There was nothing to be offensive here. You understand, Jesus came in the fullness of time, according to Galatians chapter 4. He came in the fullness of time. It says, God sent His Son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. That they may receive adoption as sons. What Jesus was doing was He was paying this atonement tax as a prelude to the cross. I really believe that that's the picture here. To redeem those who were under the law. Jesus was here to fulfill the law. When Jesus was baptized, what did John say to Jesus? It's you should baptize me. But Jesus said no, to fulfill the law. Jesus was here to do all the things that man was called to do under the law of God in order to complete everything. And he did it perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. And so when he pays this tax, he says, I'm doing it not to make offense. It's not an issue to to have an offense over. There are some things that you want where it's clear you take a stand. But there's also a time when you want to be at peace as much as possible. Again, his goal not to give offense takes us to verse, you know, like verse 27. It says, not to give offense to them, the tax collectors, and implying that goes on to the, to the leaders of the synagogues. Go to the sea and cast a hook. I, I love this picture. Cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open your mouth, take out a shekel. And then go pay our taxes. That's you and me, Peter. That's enough to cover both of us. Peter goes fishing. He's obedient on this. And I'm thinking to myself, this is such an an amazing, and I almost want to use the the word bizarre, request. First off, Peter normally doesn't fish with a hook. What does he fish with? As a fisherman to bring in a full net, well, a full catch, he brings a net. He doesn't use a hook. And when they used hooks, They used what we commonly today call a jig, which was multiple hooks. The possibility of catching, once you hit a a school of fish, catching several fish at one time. I don't know if you've ever done that, jigging for fish off a pier someplace where where the, the mackerel, for instance, are running. And to catch two or three of them at once is an amazing experience. And it is fun. But one hook. And somebody says, well, was it baited or not? I think Jesus would have said baited if that was part of the deal. He was being so specific here. He says, cast a hook, and there's a fish 
in all of the area that you're fishing, there's a single fish that's going to be the first fish that strikes. And you're going to be able to pull it in on a single hook, not lose it, and it's going to have the money in its mouth to pay the tax. And you wrestle with this, and the first thing that you realize is the foreknowledge and omniscience of Jesus. He knows all things. This was nothing that he couldn't be involved with and, and cause to happen. The question is, 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 was it complicated or simple? And when I say that, you'll see what I mean. The complicated version. Somebody lost a coin off a fishing boat into the water and a fish picked it up. Now, the, the, the shekel was shiny. It was silver. If it was a new one especially, possibly, it would shine like a, almost like a lure going down the water. A fish might go for it. But he didn't swallow it. I had one commentator where it was a coin big enough that maybe the fish couldn't swallow it. I don't know. Nobody knows. But it stayed in his mouth. He didn't spit it out either. And then it says, okay, Peter, now you go throw in your line. And the first fish you catch is going to be the one. I started looking at the odds of something like that. I was wishing Levi was here to help me with the statistics on it. You know, uh, and, and I think about it. I was thinking about this last night. The, the statistics, and, I, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. What are the statistics for all of us right here to be here right now? All the things that have happened in our past to bring us to the point where we are right here, right now, listening to the Word of God together. And you start to think about it. It's really quite amazing and mind-boggling. And you realize the, the foreknowledge, the omniscience, the authority of God. In all of this. God has a plan that is unfolding. And we are part of it. And it's an interesting thing as you understand that the tax collectors were part of this. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, God has orchestrated this. So the complicated version, somebody lost the coin, the fish swallowed it, you know, all of this. Or the simple version, Jesus spoke it and it was. Both have, you know, verses to back it up as to what Jesus can do. I mean, He can change water into wine by by His Word. This would be nothing for Jesus impossible. It would be compared to some of the things that He's done. It would be a minor miracle. As amazing and complicated statistically as it would be, it wouldn't be anything exceptional in the way of miracles on Jesus' part. Jesus spoke and it happened. No matter how you look at it, that's the end result. And that's an all interesting to complicate or to contemplate, but it's not the point that Jesus was trying to make here. Again, it was the fact that he his foreknowledge, his omniscience. You know, another example of this goes back into John chapter uh, one in the very first uh, encounter with the disciples of Jesus, the Nathaniel verses forty four uh, and uh, up through verse fifty fifty one, where Nathaniel comes into the picture and he goes and and he tells his brother under the tree, "Come with me, we've seen the Messiah." And Jesus says, "Oh, Nathaniel, you're the one that was sitting under the tree." 
He knew exactly where Nathaniel had been. He knew exactly what, what was going on. And you think of the foreknowledge of Christ, the omniscience. And it starts to be, as you think about it, if you're contemplating it from, your, from a personal point of view, it starts to becoming somewhat sobering. He knows me intimately. I believe that He knows me better than myself. Better than I know me. He knows my heart. He knows my mind. He knows the plan He has for me. I'm not a puppet. I choose as I go along. But in His foreknowledge and omniscience, He knows the end results. And it's quite sobering to think about the fact that He knows my grumbles. He knows my attitudes. My wife would tell you that this last week I haven't been doing my best physically and my attitudes were probably needing some adjustment. So she knows my attitudes, but He even knows them better. He knows my heart. He knows my thoughts. That should be very, again, sobering to all of us how intimately He knows us. And He knew Peter inside and out. And the amazing thing was is that Peter was so obedient in this. And what would seem to anybody a ridiculous task. Again, what are the odds? Now back to the fact that Jesus is willing to pay the tax. He said again, not to give offense. This word offense means to cause to be upset, to be annoyed, or even to be resentful. And again, who here? Who is the people that initially here? The tax collectors. I put on my notes the tax collectors plus. Again, the synagogue officials, ultimately Pharisees, scribes that would come in on this. Sadducees might take a distant step on this because they were in flux about the, the, the temple tax and whether to pay it or not and how often it needed to be done. But a broader, broader application here, this idea of not to be an offense. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live Peaceably with all. When one of the commentators I was reading tied that into there, I thought, whoa. Think about all of that. As much as it's up to you, as much as it depends on you, if possible, be at peace with all. Now, some people have used these scriptures to say that the church is to not speak in any way that offends anyone. Because Jesus said we're not to be offensive. He wasn't even offensive. They need to read the New Testament a little clearer. Jesus said that there were times where we would be persecuted because we offended the people because we were so focused on what Christ had done and they wanted nothing to do with it. 
But the key to this is if possible. I thought, what what influences this? And I, you know, I could I could spend hours just on the idea of the of the different things that might influence the idea of where you have to draw a line and take a stand. But what I'd rather do this morning is to just direct you to a couple of instances that happened in the book of Acts, early in the the history of the church. Acts chapter 4. The day of Pentecost has already occurred in chapter 2. They've received the Holy Spirit. The building of the church is going on. They've been preaching in the city of Jerusalem, the disciples have. And now the city of Jerusalem is beginning to respond through the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin, the council, the leadership of the Jewish people in a negative way. And so, in chapter 4, Peter and John specifically are brought before the Sanhedrin, before the council. And I'm I'm not going to read all of this, but bring you to chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they, the council or the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Now when it says uneducated, there's a lot of misinterpretation here for a lot of times. It didn't mean they couldn't read or write. It means they weren't scholars, and yet they were preaching like it. They were preaching with power. They were preaching with authority. And so they, but seeing the, uh, it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They were teaching the same things that Jesus had taught, again, with power and authority. Those listening, many were responding. And people were being added to their number. And so it says, uh, but seeing the man who was uh, healed a man standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They had just healed this man. That's one of the things that had drawn attention to it. And... and uh, So it says, when they had commanded them, the disciples, that they commanded the council, Sanhedrin, commanded the disciples to leave the council, they conferred with one another. They asked them to step outside the room where the council was meeting and they were going to talk together amongst themselves. And what was going on, it says, what shall we do with these men? That a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further. Can you see their determination? No matter what we see, no matter what we hear, we refuse it. But in order that it may not spread, that it spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, referring to the name of Jesus. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, for yourselves, you're going to have to figure that out. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, the council further threatened the disciples They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, it had been a long illness. 
the Sanhedrin were the authority in Jerusalem for the Hebrew people. And yet you see very clearly here, Peter and John saying, we can't stand with what you just told us. Do you think this was offensive to those? It says it basically was. They didn't know what to do. We couldn't. We did, really didn't want to punish them because the people had just seen this miracle and it would cause a riot of some kind. So they said, okay, don't you go teach about Jesus anymore. And they said, if you let us go, that's exactly what we're going to do. There is a time where you draw a line. I think of during the time of the Cold War uh, and the, the, the occupation of many of the Eastern European countries, Poland and other places, and the times that we had people who got escaped from those areas, and they talked about their churches, their underground churches, and when they were confronted by the, the, the uh, authorities, they would not deny Jesus Christ. They'd go to prison rather than do that. Over and over and over again, we hear those stories. Multiple books written about it that you can read. And it was so amazing to see the test of their faith and the strength of their conviction. And I think even to myself, I'm thinking, am I strong enough to stand against that? And then I thought, no, I'm not. The Holy Spirit is. These people went and they went back and they preached the Word of God. Now, chapter 5 picks this up again. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's looking at chapter 5, um, verses 17. I guess we can start there. Uh, uh, up through 32. Again, they were healing the sick. There was all this, this ministry going on. And the high priest rose up and all were with them. This is the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Talking, you know, this time they said, you didn't listen. Basically, you didn't listen to our warning. We told you not to do this. Now you're going to jail. And they did. And you notice what drove them? Jealousy over the fact that the people were hearing them and finding their faith in Christ. They arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Referring to the life of Jesus, the way. Again, there is a point where you take a stand when it's defending the Word of Christ, defending the Gospel, putting it forth, Versus holding your tongue because some authority outside of Christ has said to do this. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and, and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the, again, all of the Senate, the Sanhedrin of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought back to them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple 
and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. I like that. Greatly perplexed about them. Wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went to and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. In other words, they basically said, come with us. Now, it's interesting to see the, the disciples at this point. They didn't refuse to go with the, with the guard. There's a sense of this wasn't the place to draw the line. Okay, we're being arrested for what we, we are told to do by Christ. We will go. We'll stand before the council. But we, as we stand before the council, we'll stand for Christ no matter what. And so again, they're before the council. And when they had brought them, they set before them, verse 27, uh, the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have, been, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. That's kind of an inward sign of kind of a guilt about all of this and the reference to crucifying Jesus, turning Him over for Pilate to be crucified. But Peter and the apostles answered. Notice now it's all of them. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at the right hand of the leader and the Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they emerged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to stone the disciples is basically what it is. Then there was an intervention and, and, and it kind of someone coming to saying, wait a minute, this is too rash. We can't do something like that. And we get down to verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, referring to the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus uh, as the Christ. As much as is possible, we are to be at peace, but when, and, and with the authorities in obedience. We're not free to do whatever we please. And we see over and over in Scripture the, 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 the blessing that God gives as people are obedient even to a overpowering, tyrannical power. And how He blesses them. Daniel, lion's den. We see so many encounters like this and we realize, who is it we are to stand in at the time and point where someone comes against the church? We need to stand on the Word of God. But in lieu of that, meaning in that challenge, we are to be at peace as much as possible. Paul says in, in the Romans that we're to honor those who are in authority over us. And he was referring to everything to... From, and he didn't mean em, to honor the emperor by bowing down to him as a god, 
but to respect his position as the authority. To respect the Roman soldiers. In fact, Jesus even said, when the Roman soldier who has the right to tell you to carry his luggage one mile, carry it two. Go above and beyond to be what? At peace as much as possible. When it comes time to pay our taxes, man, it's hard sometimes when we realize where our, our, our tax money goes in, in some places, especially when it has to do with things that we may not agree with in moral purpose. And it's not like we can sit there and, and divide our tax and say, well, we're only, our tax is only going here. We can write that, but it doesn't mean anything. But still, Jesus said, what is the, the coin I hold from the Roman Empire? Whose emblem is on it? Caesar. Matthew 22, he says, pay unto Caesar what is owed Caesar. Pay unto God what you owe to God. Jesus was basically saying, when the government is over you and as much as you can, be at peace with it. Abide by it. What if it puts me under the poorhouse? Do you trust Jesus to see you through the poorhouse? It's basically what the bottom line comes to. Can you rest with the confidence that no matter where Jesus calls you, He is prepared to meet your need even with a drachma or a, 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 a shekel in the mouth of a fish in a miraculous fishing event. He can do it and He will. And He has. And we see it over and over again in the, in the Word of God and through the testimony of saints since then. The Book of Martyrs is an interesting book to read. And you find that even under such stressful persecution, amazing things happened in the kingdom of God. I love it that the, the reality was is that the apostles, when they left uh, in, in chapter 4, it was they went and they prayed. And, and uh, it says, as they prayed, the room shook with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were filled with boldness to do what? Go out and preach the Word of Christ. The life of Christ. The Gospel. Now, what was for then is for now. In the sense that I'm saying, you know, uh, kind of, you know, this, this is all to, to show us that as Christians, the striving to be at peace is an extremely important facet of our witness to the community. Where it doesn't conflict, that's exactly what Peter and John were saying, where it doesn't conflict with the Word of God, no problem. Even though we don't want to pay the tax, even though we don't want to do this, and it had nothing to do with the temple tax at this point, it also implied the way Jesus put his, his little parable about kings and sons, it implied about taxes in general. And then he certainly clarifies it in Matthew 22 when he holds up the coin of Caesar. And I looked at this and I thought, do I pay my, and, and, and I had to really wrestle with this, do I pay my taxes reluctantly? Do I pray them willingly? Yeah, I'm not coerced. Well, am I? And then I had to even think about that. 
the, 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 the concern about going to jail if you don't pay your taxes or being taxed more because you didn't pay your taxes with penalties that are pretty stiff. And I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, am I a willing... And then I said, no, it's not even willing. Do I want to pay my taxes? Am I pleased to obey the Lord in what is Caesar's and what Caesar calls for me to give it to him? And then I read in, 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 in Corinthians, Paul saying, God loves a cheerful giver. And I thought, well, that only has to do with the, the tithing. And I thought, what if it doesn't? What if it's a broader picture here? That whatever we're called to do, is, you know, we do it with a heart of gratitude. And you know, it's, I do think about it. We, get some, we have police protection. We have fire protection. We have so many different things that we can attribute to the, the taxes and the different things that we pay. And man, I have to tell you, more than once I've had to call the police in a situation where uh, there was vandalism going on around my neighborhood and I was thankful to see them come. I was thankful to see them as my, my son's car's windshield was bashed in by people driving by with a baseball bat and they caught him just two blocks over and that they, the windshield got paid for. I was thankful. I thought, man, you, you know, if I start to look at this, I can be a little bit of a hypocrite. Thank you, Lord, for the police and, and the, the protection and, the, and the, this and that, but I don't like this over here. And you know, The reality is, if it doesn't conflict with, the, with my, my faith and interfere from me sharing the gospel, then I can be at peace as much as possible. What are the... Disciples using as their standard to gauge this. It says, if possible. Now, what if it's not working? Like I shared with, with Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, they were, no matter what, they were committed to preaching the living Word of God. Now, on less imp- you know, imperative issues, again, be at peace. What if and this happened, and it's recorded in Romans, you're in a Gentile church, and they had gone to the market and bought a bunch of meat for an after-church dinner, and you knew that that meat that's in the marketplace in a Gentile meat market has already been declared and sacrificed uh, to the idols of Rome. Can you eat it? Well, Paul says you're free in all these things. But it's better to not eat it than to cause one who can't because his conscience isn't clear on this yet to stumble. And I realized this whole thing was driving us to this point. Our life is to be considering the person other than ourselves in the midst of how we, we, we work and, and do things. And it always comes back to this. God is first, the other man is second, and I'm third. And we were to consider things in that order. Before we, we leave chapter 17, I want to go back to, to uh, 
verses 22 and 23. Because it's really important as we realize coming from the Mount of Transfiguration to being in the confrontation of a demonic uh, possessed child and Jesus delivering them to this point where Jesus' words are so just almost overwhelming. As they were gathering in Galilee, in other words, as soon as they had gotten to Capernaum, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered, be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And He will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. And I looked at this, the idea of being greatly distressed and what it was was they just couldn't fathom it. They couldn't understand it. And I think Peter was still in the back of his head. No, we'll make sure it doesn't happen. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, a sword is drawn and a defense is made. And Jesus said, no, put your sword away. It was hard for them to grasp that Jesus was going to go with the hands of men and willingly suffer and go to the cross and be killed. And the raised on the third day was something that hadn't met them until it happened. And the tomb was empty. Peter or Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus became sin for us. Even though he knew no sin himself, he became sin for us so that we might be resting in the righteousness of God. I think of, of and, and I know I'm repetitive on this, but I think of Romans chapter 8 where it says those who are resting in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ and His shed blood as they celebrate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as they claim Jesus as their Savior in their, and, and declare it with their mouth and receive it in their heart. It says that, that there is no condemnation for those who rest in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 it goes on to say that those who are resting in Christ Jesus are children of God. There is nothing we need to bring to the sacrifice, if you will, because the sacrifice has been made. We rest in what Jesus has done. And so now we're joint heirs with Jesus as He shares His kingdom with us, as He pulls us into His kingdom as the children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love the end of Romans 8 where it says, and, and nothing created can take this away from you. What a powerful picture. This is what we rest in. This is what they were preaching even in the streets of Jerusalem as much as they, as they, as they understood it with the resurrection and stuff. There was still more to understand through the Holy Spirit teaching them. But they, they were preaching this and it was so offensive. Is it? And we look at it today and we find that it's not uncommon to find that, that you know, Somebody preaching the Word of God in some public format may be booed, may be you know, asked to not come and speak after being asked to come and speak. You know, uh, we're seeing this you know, in different places and, and, and the challenge. And so we look at this and we say, you know, the picture is for us that we're going to stand on the Word of God. What has He done? He's become sin for us. That we who are sinners might know His grace, His forgiveness, and rest in His righteousness. That's what we celebrate every Sunday when we do communion together. 
We share the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. His flesh on the cross, represented by the bread. His blood poured out, represented by the cup. And the symbolic picture for us as we share in that is to rest in the reality of what Christ has done for us. And so Paul calls all believers as they share in communion together to share the bread, to share the cup until Christ comes again. I'd ask the ushers to come pass out the emblems, bread, the cup. Hold them until we've been served together and we'll we'll share together.